A very good morning to you. It is Sunday the 10th of February 2019 and this is On The Record on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Gavin Riley, with you until 1 o'clock this afternoon. If you want to contact the programme, you can text us on 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. We are also on Twitter at News Talk FM or at Gav Riley. A very busy show on the way and we will start, as we always do, by taking a look at the Sunday newspapers along with our panel this morning. Richie Oakley, editor of the Ireland edition of The Times. Good morning, Richie. Morning. Uh, Colette Brown is a columnist with the Irish Independent. Morning, Colette. Good morning. And Professor Gary Murphy is a political scientist at DCU and the author of Electoral Competition in Ireland since 1987. Good morning, Gary. Hi, Gavin. Uh, There is plenty in the newspapers uh, and we're going to have a quick look at what's on them. Uh, The front page of the Sunday Business Post, uh, the Labour leader pushes government access for big tobacco firms, uh, reports Barry J. White. Leading tobacco firms have ramped up their lobbying of senior politicians across the political spectrum, recently convincing Labour Party leader Brendan Howland to call on the government to meet them to discuss anti-smoking policies. Last month, two giants cigarette makers, Japan Tobacco and Imperial Brands lobbied Howland as part of their goal to loosen Ireland's practice of not meeting with tobacco companies, a policy endorsed by the WHO. In fact, it goes on to explain how Brendan Howland then approached Pascal who asking if that was the appropriate policy to have, saying that there should be no harm meeting with these people as long as it's all done very transparently. Below the fold, by the way, crackdown on state pensions nets 15 million euro for the Exchequer. Thousands of partners of state pensioners have had their pensions reduced or cut off completely as part of a new crackdown which has brought in 15 million euro, according to Michael Brennan. Uh, The front page of the Sunday Independent, rent crisis, first sign of slowdown. Soaring rent prices are showing signs of slowing down for the first time in three years, but remain at record high levels, according to a new housing report. Housing experts say the rate of increases nationally is cooling due to an increased supply of new homes and rent caps being introduced in areas of high demand. Um, I'm always struck and fascinated by stories like that, that that say that a slowdown in increases is a good idea when in fact it is still masking the fact that those increases are still, you know, increasing. Um, Front page of the Sunday World, uh, Patrick O'Connell exclusive, I hope they die screaming. Heartbroken wife pays tribute to family man who lived for his kids. She slams killers who gunned down Darndale dad, John 39. That is the partner of the man who was uh, killed in that um, gangland attack in Darndale earlier in the week. I've deliberately left these two papers until last uh, because I want to play you some audio about this in just a moment. Uh, The Sunday Times, uh, it has a a picture on the front of somebody holding a placard at the nurses demo yesterday uh, in the city centre in Dublin. My mammy is a nurse, says the demo. Uh, What is your superpower? Talks on nurses pay heat up as thousands march in support of the nurses yesterday. Uh, But the main story in the Sunday Times, Harris to correct the dull record on National Children's Hospital to save job. Simon Harris will try to diffuse anger over his handling of the 450 million euro overrun and the cost of the National Children's Hospital with a statement to the Dáil this week correcting a parliamentary reply he gave last September. The Health Minister will seek to de-escalate the political tensions by acknowledging that a reply he gave to Fianna Fáil's Barry Cowan suggested that spending was in hospital, spending at the hospital was in line with the expected profile when he should have acknowledged that the guaranteed maximum price had not actually been finalised. Similar story on the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday. Harris is sorry as the hospital blame game spreads. He is prepared to correct the dull record and to show appropriate contrition in an effort to defuse the political crisis over the National Children's Hospital. Uh, I'm going to get the thoughts of my panel on that in just a moment, but I do want to play you some audio on that topic first. Um, first of all, Simon Harris was asked a written dull question on the 18th of September last year by Barry Cowan, the Fianna Fáil public expenditure spokesman. Barry Cowan asked exactly what the costs were of the hospitals so far and whether they were all within budget. Simon Harris replied saying what the costs were so far and saying that everything incurred so far was within budget, but neglected to mention that he had also been told that there were unavoidable overruns on the way. Now, he was asked about this in a dull committee at the Oireachtas Health Committee on January the 29th. Here is a little bit of what he had to say when Alan Kelly challenged him on whether that actually was a correct reply. 
I am satisfied that the PQ on the 18th of September was an accurate and factual account uh, of the situation at that time. Couldn't it be? Well, it was, but I, I'm not being argumentative on this, but the government hadn't made a decision in relation to... Even you proceed. knew the costs were higher. The government hadn't made a decision in relation... You knew the costs were higher. I knew that the costs were likely to increase, but I didn't know the figure. I also knew that there were commercially sensitive negotiations ongoing. The question, and I've reread it and read it again, the question was quite specific in relation to was the project on profile and the likes from my memory, and also the government hadn't made a decision in relation to proceed with phase B. There was even contingency planning being done should the government decide not to proceed uh, by the board as well. So that's Simon Harris defending his answer in the Oireachtas Health Committee on January the 29th, two weeks ago. But it was only after that, in fact, of course, it was only in the last few days that we saw memos which proved that Harris did know firmly that certain costs were unavoidable and that the budget that he had set out simply couldn't be met. Um, Richie Oakley, editor of the Ireland edition of The Times. It strikes me that Simon Harris is making this apology not because he actually thinks it's merited, given that we've heard in that audio a couple of weeks ago that he didn't think it was merited, but rather just to save his skin and to get Fianna Fáil off his back. Well, they they say he's not going to apologise for the decision he made or the way the Department of Health officials conduct themselves, but he is planning to address it all, uh, mainly to say that that uh, that he 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 should have given more accurate information mm. at the time. I mean, no matter what way you look at it, he did know, and he knew in in August, and he, there was no doubt in in, in August mm. that there was at least one hundred and ninety million uh, overrun. Yeah, and he then sent them back to to consider this other two hundred million that was in debate. Yeah, and, and to come back with the final figures. But at that stage, he should have been ra- raising the red flag. He should have been. He should have. He should have been talking to the finance minister and to the Taoiseach. Why didn't he? Why didn't this come out? Like we were asking questions around the time. There was a lot of rumours going on around the children's hospital and it was very hard to get uh, information. And you can see politicians struggling to get accurate information as well. Um, is it that he was hoping for a reshuffle to get out of the health? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, could it have to do with confidence and supply? Did they w- not want this getting out so they didn't have to go into negotiations with Fianna Fáil on it? Um, there's no doubt that, that if it wasn't for Brexit, um, Fianna Fáil would either be demanding his head or they'd have collapsed the government mm. by now. Instead, they're saying it's so serious that they want him to come in and make some kind of apology on the Dáil record, which is hardly the biggest punishment uh, anyone's ever got for messing up a massive uh, cost, you know, cost overrun. Mm. Um, so it looks as if he'll do this. Fianna Fáil say that that's fine. Sinn Féin will go crazy and that'll be the end of it. Um, Colette Brown, if the government had been collapsed over this in a non-Brexit scenario where Fianna Fáil felt like it had perhaps the power to, to pull the plug on this, um, some people that I spoke to within Fine Gael earlier in the week were making the argument that this isn't actually about the rising costs at all, that the, what we're debating now and the prospect of Simon Harris having to go into the doll is all about process. But in substance, uh, as Richie has pointed out, £191 million of this overspend at the Children's Hospital would have been incurred by anyone because it related to upgrades after the Grenfell tyre and you know a more elaborate sprinkler system and electrics and all of that none of which could have been contained by any other minister. Yeah well I think what we're going to what we're going to need to see really is the PwC report and because every we're operating in this kind of informational vacuum where everybody is making a lot of assumptions about what went wrong and what must have went wrong based on a kind of a skeletal outline of what Mm. we know so far about the governance structures that were involved you know the fact that the design wasn't nailed down at an early enough stage uh, but we, 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 we actually don't know and I think that we should have learned the lessons from the cervical cancer scandal whereby everybody piled in initially to, and made a lot of people made a number of assumptions and then some of those assumptions were proven accurate and some of them were proven inaccurate and some of them were proven to be not the case at all so in relation to Simon Harris I think there's no doubt but that he's been Jesuitical when he says that you know he, he was giving you know an accurate kind of assessment of things as, as they were at mm. that time well, because he, he, he says was that because he, he wasn't if you go and look at the 
exact wording of the question that he was asked and I'm not going to through the whole uh, guts of it here because it's all in very technical He says language. it was in line with the expected expenditure yes. so profile. Bar- Barry Cowan asked so a, few, a few specific things. He said the original budgeted cost, the cost incurred to date whether the costs incurred to date are within budget and if not, why not? And if we'll make a statement. And of course, none of the costs that had technically been confirmed at that point Exactly because because budget. because we had the two step process and the first uh, process or the the first stage was completed and the second stage hadn't been signed off yet so I suppose he was technically correct but he was no doubt Jesuitical because he wasn't giving the doll all of the information that he had to hand at the time and as you say yourself he knew about this 191 million and I think he's done himself no favors by trying to kind of downplay and patronize people with the sort of language he's using like he referred to the hundreds of millions that this is going that this you know the 400 50 million at least that it's going to be over budget by we know mm. as an overrun I mean I'm not quite sure <laughs> that an overrun is a you know you know the right word for the, it, the right it? phraseology I mean if, if I go out for the night and I'm expecting to spend 70 euros and I spend maybe 120 euros that's an overrun but I don't think 450 million I don't think an overrun quite captures the extent of that and then, be, and then yeah, he says at he, least it's your money it's not the state's money <laughs> that's the an, problem and an, 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 another good point so I think Simon Harris you know the, the kind of way he's played this the Jesuitical way he's played it the kind of phraseology he's used he's kind of taken a kind of an art patronising tone with some of his political counterparts referring to himself as not being just a messenger boy and having to run here and there and you know inform people about these minor kind of trifling problems that he's having to deal with in his department Minor trifling issues like 450 (laughs) million euros There is a bigger thing here as well I mean if the PwC report is going to be worth any of the 450,000 that that Mm. it's costing and to to my mind I don't know how anyone could charge 450,000 I'd do a pretty good report if they opened up all the emails and opened up all the facts Give us all the stuff for free and let me talk to an, an engine, have an engineer sitting beside me. I think we'd, we'd do a fairly decent report. But if that report is to be any value for money, surely it's going to have to tell us a new way of doing these type of state contracts. In this case, you know, they awarded it to the to the lowest bidder mm. and then all of a sudden the lowest bidder just started, you know, costs just started adding on top of the cost. And like, th- like if you were building a house, you, you wouldn't, you know, you, unless you got Dermot Bannon to do it, yes. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think well at least we have a National Children's you know, Hospital so which please, is lots of natural Please, light, PwC, if you're out there and you're listening, please give us an indication in this report of, of how this could have been done well, differently from well, that round. Gary, yeah, that's the point. Do we have to wait for a PwC report, given that there's so many of these memos that have now been outlined, including showing that 191 million of this was unavoidable and we know exactly the reasons why it was unavoidable, but that also, if Simon Harris had been perhaps less Jesuitical in answering dull questions when all of this was first raised, that we wouldn't have got to the position where we are now? Yeah, Fine Gael have form in, uh, in this in terms of uh, stating on the Dáil record that people ask the wrong questions. Fianna Fáil have the same. Ray Burke was noted for it. John Bruton mentioned it in the Dáil one time. I mean, I'm just deeply sceptical about consultancy reports, especially consultancy reports that seem to cost, well, that are costing this vast amount of money for for what I don't really know. And previous consultancy reports on a whole range of issues from health to education, um, you know, don't really inspire me with any great confidence. It's been a terrible week for Fine Gael. It's been a bad week, I think, for the civil service and the higher echelons of the civil service who, uh, you know, are really well paid uh, public servants. Uh, and this is real money. I mean, this is not money that is just made up. It's uh, it, ha- it has all sorts of implications, I think, for Project 2040. Yeah. Um, 
it has implications for the health service writ large and uh, I'm just not convinced we're going to get anywhere what, by the what, end of it. What kind yeah. of under, underscores the kind of slightly farcical nature <clears throat> or the very kind of Irish kind of situation that we find ourselves in now is that over the last two years the state will have spent 700,000 700, euros on reports on governance and financial controls at the Children's Hospital Project which will be at least 450 million over budget mm. to possibly more than 1 billion over budget. We still don't know the final figure. So, I mean, it doesn't, you know, give you much confidence in the state's ability to manage these kinds of projects, the government's ability to manage these kinds of projects. And I think the kind of weird governance arrangements that were in place whereby you had two development boards and you had a steering committee and nobody's really sure who's reporting to who or who's responsible for who, or at least mm. it doesn't seem to be absolutely clear. All of which may have been the result of the, the fact that when this hospital structure was created in the first place, everyone thought the HSE was going to cease to exist somewhere along mm. so they had to create all these duplicitous management bodies none of which necessarily had a clear But you see I, I heard actually T- Tony O'Brien saying that and the National Pediatric Hospital Development Board was set up in 2007 and then the current board was appointed or what that was in 2013 mm. but the steering group and the other development board that were appointed that wasn't done until 2017 But it was government policy at that point that they had done a U-turn on plans to yeah. abolish the HSE as, as, far, as far as I can remember anyway it does get quite confusing. Yeah, yeah. interesting as well. We, ha- we haven't heard that much from Bam. You know, these are the guys. And you're not going to. Do <laughs> well, I, I did hear them on. Uh, there was like a mention of them. Bam on for a, listeners, of course, are the builder who originally submitted a tender of around 600 million or so for this, and now have immediately went back then last summer and said, yeah, we're and just Justine McCarthy points out in the Sunday Times that they, they've done other contracts uh, and they've, they've, you know, they've sought extra money on top of other contracts. Now they're entitled to to, to, to do whatever is allowed within the contract. They're entitled <laughs> to take whatever legal. Uh, advice and, and action mm. that, that they feel is necessary but I, I'd like to hear from them because I'd imagine they're pretty good at explaining uh, why this cost is because they've made that argument to, to the hospital board already so. and what, yeah. about, what, what, what about the other contractors who didn't get the, the job after tendering hire how, do, how must they feel when they see BAM going back and looking for more money and more money and more money again I mean it reminds me of the uh, the said Digiphone saga which is still rambling on still, still 20, 20 courts, years later yeah. and still going through the courts for those who didn't get the uh, the original uh, contract but there's one I think farcical point in this whole situation is uh, is the Brexit excuse nothing it seems can happen in this state anymore because of Brexit Liam Weeks is a very good interesting a very very good piece in the Sunday Independent today uh, comparing it to Groundhog Day the famous Bill Murray movie I mean we're constantly be told if Radcliffe is using uh, the border as a sort of internal political games, but anyone who knows anything about Irish politics means they're, they're simply it seems there cannot be an election uh, because of Brexit. I mean, I've thought this mm. ridiculous for at least a year, and I think this really breaks as well. Well, 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 an election now. now there's certainly there certainly can't be be, be, be be an election now. But I think you know everybody is speaking about the problems that this poses for Fine Gael, and you know it does obviously pose a huge problem for Fine Gael because it's a complete is, is that it's a why Fianna Fáil don't actually want to remove Simon Harris because oh, yeah, they know is, that this if this an election is coming that they want to have a weakened <laughs> opponent <laughs> in place. Philip Ryan has a line: "It's one front bench Fianna Fáil." TD. This is in the Sunday Independent. Politically speaking, a slow, painful death is far better than a quick one. So the idea is they leave Simon Harris in and, and try and damage him over a period of time, which which reflects badly on the government. But funny enough, that policy that they're spinning now it fits in exactly with, with the fact that they don't want to bring down the government mm. because of Brexit at the moment. Well, he's lose-lose as well when it comes to the nurses strike, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a while. But obviously, either if he allows some sort of payment to be made to the nurses, he'll be perceived as caving in. And if he doesn't and he stands his ground, he will become increasingly unpopular in the face of an, of an opponent that but has I think wider public I, 
support. I, I think this th- this also poses problem for Sinn Féin because Sinn Féin, it seems to me, they have this kind of automatic response that whenever there's any scandal of any description and everything these days is a scandal now, I mean, the word is being, being t- completely devalued. They call for a head or they put down motions of no confidence and they want the minister gone, but then they don't accept the political reality of what they want to do, which is if they force the removal of a minister and the Taoiseach has said that he supports the minister and doesn't want him gone, mm. then that will, you know, that, that will inevitably prompt the collapse of the government. And while F- Sinn Féin keep calling for a head, they don't then accept that actually they, they say then, so they want a head on the one hand, but they don't want an election on the other hand because they say they can't have an election around Brexit. So, you know, their strategy as well, I, I think it's incoherent. Gary, is there some oversight here, um, given that there's been so much focus on the handling of Simon Harris and mm. what he knew and when and when he chose not to tell his cabinet colleagues, uh, that actually Pascal Donoghue might have a few questions to answer in all of this too. Not obviously because he can't be micromanaging the costs of the hospital, although his department would like to. But you mentioned the civil servants when you spoke last. Civil servants in the Department of Health tried to raise this with public expenditure in the middle of September and got nowhere and tried to raise it again in the middle of of October and got nowhere and then at the end of October and got nowhere and then sent on a memo in the middle of November and only then did public expenditure go, hey, you should have told us about this earlier. In that email train, the senior civil servant at the Department of Public Expenditure replied saying, this is the first that we have heard. This is the first time we've been given concrete information. He says that... 11 days after Pascal Donoghue himself. I know. It's extraordinary. I mean, what really should have happened is the senior civil servants in the department should have went to the minister and said, I'm getting nowhere with health or I'm getting nowhere with deeper, the other way around uh, and brought it to cabinet. I mean, and it beggars belief that even before a cabinet meeting, like any of us would have meetings, you'd say, Jesus, we're now 200 million over on the children's hospital and it's going to get worse. I mean, that, in my view, beggars belief that there are silos within government over the course of months and this is not being discussed even before the the cabinet agenda gets underway. Mm. Well, it definitely uh, strikes me as being very contradictory that if, if we're going to harangue a health minister for not trying to tell his colleagues that in fact, why is it acceptable and everyone else now says along uh, on the cabinet table, everyone says Simon Harris did the right thing by not sharing details until they were completely firmed up. Just, and yet his own civil servants were tripping over themselves well, indeed, trying to share those same details. And politically it makes no sense. And I, I you know, I, I listened to the Taoiseach robustly defending uh, Simon Harris during the week saying that he did exactly what I would have told him to do if he had told me in the first place which got me questioning well why didn't he tell you in the first place anyway you're the mm. teacher you have ultimate responsibility for, for what is a, let's remind ourselves a colossal overrun in a state where yeah we might be well off but we're not that well off and a lot of people are still living in very straightened uh, circumstances an election is looming at some stage Fine Gael we heard Regina Doherty come out about you know Fine Gael's reputation for you know being boring and prudent and fiscal yeah, she, probity she says and that, they, that they are too prudent which well, is perhaps then why, why they chose the, well, I remember the these lowest this, bidder this was the party way back in the 2002 general election all be it in the deer for the party, uh, promised to refund uh, Aircom. Do you remember that? Aircom shareholders were promised to be refunded for taxi drivers. gambling, taxi, <laughs> taxi drivers. And as far back as 1981, just not to bore the listeners, uh, Fine Gael promised every housewife in the country 500 quid out of, apropos of nothing, really, during a general election. Um, so I think there might be some uh, rewriting of history I think there. I think actually Justine McCarthy makes a good point in her column as well, because I'm slightly baffled as to the level of kind of controversy about Simon Harris 
you know, whether he told, uh, whether he informally of Rogery told the government in August or two months later mm. in November. The fact that he went into the doll and he was Jesuitical with the truth, I mean, that creates a political is, problem. Is that but more other damaging than, that, than the idea that he kept it to himself throughout the budget and didn't say anything? Well, I, you know, because I, I, I think it's a fair point that it's a capital project and it didn't have any immediate impact on, on the budget. Now, Fianna Fáil want to be informed of everything that's going on behind the scenes and there's a relationship issue there. But in terms of a hanging offence, I, 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 I don't really think it, you know, it, it raises to that level. And Justine McCarthy in her piece, she makes the point that there wasn't a squeak out of the opposition or any politicians in November 2016 when it was revealed that the cost of the children's hospital had gone from 650 million to 1 billion at that mm. point. Everybody was on board. Nobody blinked an eye at the huge increase in the cost. And then she says in March 2017 that she was writing pieces and the Sunday Times were writing pieces about BAM having undercut their competitors by 150 million in the tendering process. And nobody was asking questions about that or batting a, a, a lit ne- or batting an eyelid now. Yeah, I'm sure the other uh, tenderers would want to have known how come someone else was able to deliver exactly the same project that all the modern spec well, at this such a discount to their own rate. This was known at the time, but the problem is the procurement process, the, the, the way the contract was awarded was that it was 75% on price and I think 25% on design. Mm. So, I mean, it wasn't as if somebody within the civil service or the person who was, you know, awarding the contract to somebody was able to veer outside, mm. you know, the contractual terms that the people but were... Why, why aren't minutes of projects like this? Like, why, why do we have to wait for the crisis to get these minutes? Like, why do we live in a state and and, and, and the public... Like, journalists go, go mad about this and, and we need the support of the public in this. Like, we need transparency. So, in a massive project like this, with massive amounts of state money, the minutes of the boards, all emails and all letters of correspondence from the board to the constructor company to the minister and everything should be released at set periods where commercially possible. But the government would say so. that they are commercially it, sensitive. Well, we've just got them. And, I mean, you you know, there's, a, there's an FOI Act in place that allows you to look at documents and decide which of them. And I think they should reverse the FOI. Instead of waiting for people to apply for stuff, they should look at everything that comes in and say, is this FOIable? And if so, they should publish it online and let us look at it. The problem that's, that's I, I would Gary, agree 100%, except if we've had a culture of secrecy in this government going back to the foundation of the state. I mean, freedom of information was dragged... You know, it's kicking and screaming uh, through the Oireachtas. Then it was changed, uh, and, uh, and journalists will know this better than me. But I mean, it's difficult getting FOI. Yeah, the there's loads of excuses. It, loads of excuses. Redaction seems to be the name of the game, and uh, well, so many things just have decided within, orally, and it's so decided within government itself, or within within the administrative uh, machine. I think the embattled. Uh, Secretary General of the Department of Health both on the nurses' strike and on the, uh, the children's hospital made an interesting point during the week that if you didn't go for the lowest tender you'd find yourself quickly within uh, the four courts or up. but the state in my view seems to buckle quite quickly uh, when threatened with legal action and maybe it should be a bit more robust uh, One closing thought just before I go to an ad break and Colette you mentioned there that the capital budget had already been set in stone since last February so the idea of Simon Harris keeping this to himself throughout October didn't actually matter in the arithmetic of course the interesting thing that, that shouldn't be forgotten is that when those budgets were set in stone in February it was on the day that the government signed off on the Ireland 2040 plan so you could argue that if Simon Harris told his colleagues that some deck chairs would need to be rearranged that he would be immediately undercutting this whole national that massive national blueprint and that the whole thing would therefore be undermined or he could allow Ireland 2040 to remain on the books even though the government knew that it couldn't be delivered upon in the strict dotted I's cross T sense because there might have been a general election coming <laughs> and that it's, it's really catch-22 they're damned if they did and they're damned if they don't uh, we will talk more about that and the nurses strike uh, and the uh, ongoing Brexit impasse when we're back after this On the Record On, the record. on News Talk
Welcome back. It's Gavin Riley on the record on News Talk with you until one o'clock this afternoon with our panel, Richie Oakley, Colette Brown and Gary Murphy. Uh, there is plenty of discussion in the Sunday newspapers today, of course, about the uh, the nurses' strike, about, uh, as you mentioned in the first part, Simon Harris being damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, threatened with other domino pay claims on one side and threatened with a growing show of force and public support for nurses on the other. Um, Colette Brown, do you think that there was any point beyond which that maybe... You know, although most people stand with the nurses and midwives and there was a great demonstration in city centre yesterday and thousands of people turned out. Is that uh, an infinite support or, or may there come a time when people might begin to feel that this is being pushed a bit too far? I think, well, it depends on how long this strike goes on for. And, you know, we've had stories, I mean, on Liveline during the week, it was full of um, people people calling in and saying that, you know, their scans had been cancelled and, you know, various procedures had been cancelled. So, you know, there, there is, a, despite that, there is a huge amount of goodwill for nurses. I think they're probably one of the most popular professions in the country and everybody sees them as having a hard job to do and mm. a difficult job to do and that they're relatively low you know um, you know, badly paid in comparison to other medical professions in the health service what I find kind of bizarre about this whole thing is that it's so hard to nail down some objective facts like how much does a nurse earn on average you'd imagine that that would be a pretty uncontroversial yes, thing because the that figures would be that are circulated enough. include higher grades as well or people who are specialists who exactly and we had an independent report that was published last year from the Public Sector Pay Commission which was supposed to interrogate all of this and they found that you know on average you know they're not you know in com- relatively speaking in comparison to other jurisdictions that they're not too, you know uh, th- that badly paid but then they had a caveat in that and in, in that they had you know certain questions over the figures that were provided to them from the government before they prepared the report and then mm. we had the INMO coming out and they were scathing about the figures that were used in that report mm. so I mean I, I just find that I, I just find that a bit weird uh, I think the nurses as well they don't do themselves any favours when they try to kind of over egg certain certain aspects of their of their claim at the moment like when they say there's a recruitment crisis at the moment and they can't retain staff there is a recruitment crisis but it's only in certain sections and in certain hospitals and in certain specialities it's not it's 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 not across the board and when they say that they can't retain nurses as far as I'm aware the turnover rate in Ireland is 15% and I think in Australia where a lot of people are going at the moment there's a turnover turnover rate there between 10 and 15% so I think we have to deal in facts I think there's a lot of sympathy for nurses. I think that no doubt now that nursing is a profession. People have to do a degree. It's a hard degree to get into. It's a a hard uh, qualification to get. Then, you know, they should be able to sit down and uh, sort out something with the government. But I mean, I think from both sides, what I just find, you know, a a bit kind of bizarre about the whole thing is that objective facts seem to be so few on the ground. Well, on on that uh, note, Susan Mitchell has a piece on page three of the Sunday Business Post today. Of course, she's been doing so much uh, really valuable and fascinating work around all of this as well. And she has a story uh, under the headline um, Claim of one applicant for every four nursing posts debunked. Uh, And she writes, uh, it's at the very top of page three in the Sunday Business Post, um, that the HSE has run five recent nursing recruitment competitions for more than 500 vacancies. And the figures paint a different picture with some recruitment rounds receiving uh, receiving six times as many applicants as needed. Like, for example, uh, 27 applicants for 10 nursing vacancies as clinical midwife managers, 198 applicants for 183 vacancies for staff nurse vacancies relating to older people uh, 48 people applied for 76 vacancies for nursing relating to intellectual disability um, Richie it, it all does seem to, to fairly clinically outline that maybe the the idea of retention that uh, the INMO has, has sought to make so much ground on uh, maybe doesn't have the same currency as we might have thought Yeah I look I, I think when, when, when you, you hear um, the, the nurses organisation on I mean obviously they're 
they're in the, 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 the hospitals, they're, they're at the coalface and they know what the problems are and they know what the difficulties are. And it must be very frustrating for them where they're trying to do a really good job and they feel that they don't have uh, the, the resources to, to, to do it. And I, I fully and totally sympathise with that. And there does seem to be some, some light uh, coming in the, in, in the tunnel, if we, if we want to use that mm. metaphor. Um, the, the, the Sunday Times is saying that they, there could be a look at the salary scales, allowing nurses to move up the salary scales quicker. And the Sunday Independent is, is saying that they could look at allowances. Uh, and Tony O'Brien has piece in Sunday Business Post saying, here are some of the solutions. And that seems to be where the discussions are. And Patricia King... Of, of the mm. Irish Congress trade unions is at the talks and they're kind of I think that's a, a sign that possibly if they agree a deal that maybe there'll be an agreement from the unions that look it's a one-off it's only for the for the nurses yeah like like the so guards hopefully years ago. But <laughs> and then the teacher standing by wondering there's, when there's they another, get to go there's another reality to this and Dan O'Brien sums it up really well I mean if we take the government's figure of 300 million a year over five years that's 1.5 billion in the nurses are looking for if if you take this 12 percent pay rate well, of course of it wouldn't all be for, wouldn't all be for the nurses though of course it would be across other knock-on this, areas this before you get onto now, Dan O'Brien says there's three things you can do. You can get you, it says there's four things you can you can get the money from spare cash. We don't have any of that. You can borrow the money. You can hike taxes or you can cut spending, uh, and that's it. And no one's going to. So I'd like to ask the, you know the nurses' representative where where do you want to get this money from? What what would you be prepared? You know what where else should we we cut? And the reality is during the boom years. The public sector wages rose and rose and rose and rose. And when the crisis happened, which, of course, was by reckless lending in the banks and all mm. the other kind of things, the public pay bill was massive and it couldn't be paid. And it was out of control. And the government had to bring in emergency legislation to bring down the, the public sector pay bill. And now we have people, people who criticise the media for cheerleading the boom are now criticising the media for asking for fiscal responsibility. And the there's only a few people in the media saying, look, you, ca- you cannot afford to give this money. And our paper has has the same position. My sister's a nurse. I'd love to see her get more money. But the reality is the government doesn't have this money. It's facing into potential economic uh, turmoil because of Brexit, because of moves in, in America. Um, we're, we could potentially be getting back to, to a recession uh, in, in the UK. They're, they're saying there's a one in four chance of a recession next year. That's gonna That would affect us if there's a no deal yeah, Brexit. Germany's already in recession. The, the fiscal bodies that we set up that, to, to look at the economy are saying to the government, you're, you're, you're out of control on spending as it is. And, and the, 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 the one thing I do concern about is cost of living is key. The, the, the cost of living in Ireland is crazy and we need sectoral reform. We need to reform insurance, law. All these areas need to be reformed to make them cheaper. Obviously, rent but is oh, a massive only some problem. Of which, well, rent is the only they're one of those all, that's going to directly affect the cost of living. They're all putting on the pressure. So but it has course, to be tackled these. Of course, it could, uh, well, of course, it, some of them could have been reformed during the uh, the great crisis and when Fine Gael came to power in 2011, we had all sorts of promises about uh, restructuring of law and whatnot and none of it ever happened in terms of the, uh, the vested interest. Now, nurses... Trade unions are their own vested interest, of course. Uh, but to go to Richie's point, I cannot see how pay cannot be part of this uh, agreement because the INMO will have no credibility with their average nurse on the ground who's out at the picket line. I remember back in 1998, my wife as a nurse was on strike. Uh, then that was a much different strike. Tony Brown points out that was a nine-day all-out strike. This is much more staged and he makes the point that it, they seem to be in it for the, for the long term. So I think pay, whether it's a pay commission or moving the scales, uh, will, cert- will have to be part of the resolution because... Uh, 
your average nurse on the ground won't wear the uh, won't wear and it I otherwise. Think, like I mean, the the nurses are they have gone to war with the government on this, and they have chosen a time which is you know every year typically the busiest time in A and E units, the most kind of overburdened time mm. that the health service experiences to hold their strikes. So I mean, they, they they are playing hardball here, and they are going to have to get a win because they you know they've walked up to the top of the hill now, and they're going to need to get something. And I think there's an increasing realization from government who seem to be now maybe you know a, a, attempting to kind of diffuse and the whole situation and there might be support for the nurses and, 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 and it, might, it might carry on and I, I think I suspect it will but there won't be support public support for other groups coming out and saying the nurses got it so maybe the government are thinking in those terms I mean if there's a teacher strike I can't see teachers having any support simply because nurses got money why can't we get money or, or whoever mm. and I think that must part play into the government's thinking on uh, on how to resolve well, this well, because it does come to this public service stability agreement and so called clause 3 whether it does say you can raise uh, nurses pay or it doesn't and there seems to be a, a, a different interpretation on, on that yeah. uh, but is, isn't it is it possible though um, Richie that some, so much of the sympathy that the nurses are commanding isn't necessarily because people have sympathy with the nurses but rather that they see nurses as the human face of a health system which has many dysfunctions you know as whole side aside from you know nursing recruitment and pay and, and whether they can be retained or not I mean I'm looking at the figures here this morning from the uh, HSE special delivery unit which examines all of the, the hospital stats um, there are uh, as of 8am this morning there are 314 people on trolleys in emergency departments nationwide 125 of those were there um, for over 9 hours 31 of them had been there for over 24 hours now th- that none of that necessarily has anything to do with nurses it could be the difficulty in having consultants to have them admitted or it could be uh, the lack of capacity within the hospitals to admit them once they're, they're accepted as an inpatient so all of that goes beyond nurses but when people support the nurses they are supporting the nurses because the nurses are the people inside the system saying this whole system needs to be changed yeah I mean we, we've seen like a lot of money gets pumped into health uh, every year and every, at the end of every year health come back and ask for more money there doesn't seem to be any control over the budgets there's been reports by the Department of Finance into the Department of Health uh, where they've kind of said look these guys are not able to handle um, money we do, we do put a lot of money into health there was a massive increase um, this year but we don't seem to get amazing uh, value for, for money back um, I, I, I it, like it's funny, you see Sinn Féin saying, you know, the government, you know, needs to, to address the, the, the nurses' demands. And then Sinn Féin will turn around tomorrow and say, you know, we need to give more more, more surgeries for X, Y and Z. And there's a disconnect in Ireland that like, people don't realise. But it's not the job of opposition parties to point out that there are certain services that ought to be provided that aren't. Yeah, but you then can't turn around at the same time and ask the government to put 1.5 billion into nurses' salaries. I mean, you you, ca- you can't you either spend the money on services or you spend it on salaries, uh, and you, you can't do the same now. The nurses. But I think would argue every single every single opposition party services. is supporting the nurses. That I mean, they it are, is, and it's in, like Fianna Fáil. Like I mean, that, like th- that's just a real popular popular position, and that's how we end up with with people who don't understand that there isn't money. It, the money just is not there. But Fianna Fáil, you understand, because of course they were in government when the last nurses uh, strike uh, took place. Um, and yeah, it is a bit populist. And, but I, I think there's a reasonable point to make that, you know, pay should be part of the negotiations. It, it, it seems incumbent on the government to go into talks saying everything is on the table because by this, having, having this hardline view seems to making making the nurses more... Um, vociferous in their demands um, and I think also Tony O'Brien makes a good point in terms of the nurses should probably call off the strike uh, 
in relation to getting around the table with everything with everything on it. Funnily enough, being a Minister for Health isn't, going back to Simon Harris, isn't the, the death knell that some people think it is. Brian Cohen, of course, famously was Minister for Health, he became Taoiseach. Michael yeah, Martin was Minister for Health, he still, you know, hopes to become Taoiseach. So maybe there's <laughs> yeah. hope for Simon Harris did, after did, all. Did, didn't manage to, to deflate Leo Varadkar when he was there for a couple well, of I mean, years Well, of course. How, how, how could I forget our great Taoiseach? Um, yes. On the topic, and just because we mentioned um, how rent and the cost of living and that people support nurses because it is virtually impossible, they believe, to, to live a decent life on, on the salary that they have particularly where they have to um, there's some stories um, in today's papers but most notably in the Sunday Independent about the uh, the slowing increase in the rate of rents I always like when, when rents are referred to as some sort of sentient being that they rise without <laughs> landlords being responsible for it uh, but Colette that we're celebrating the idea of rents slowing down a bit when yeah, they are well, still as, actually rising as someone who's renting and I'm not popping champagne corks <laughs> just yet because the rise has gone from 12.4% year on year to 9.8% year on year and a 10% increase on rents just strikes me as a relatively uh, high So g- give high us those increase. figures again so the increase that the, the, the slowdown is still tantamount to 10% increase Yeah, so it's uh, rent inflation fell from 12.4% in mid-2018 to 9.8% by year-end, the slowest growth. So that's 12.4% mid-2018 to 9.8%. So it's, yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't exactly be doing any dances, you know, or celebrations just yet. (laughs) What uh, what, um, Ronan Lyons, he's the economist for Daft, says is that you know, on a positive note that there does seem to be more availability of properties to rent at the moment. So there were 3,641 properties available to rent at the start of 2019 and that's an 11% increase compared to it last year and supply in Dublin increased by 18% in this period which does seem to be a pretty substantial increase in the level of rental properties that are available in Dublin although it doesn't then tell you exactly at what price points these properties are available. Because <laughs> It also yes. says one of the reasons for the slowdown is that literally people have reached the level that they can yes, afford that, that yeah. there's a ceiling beyond which there's they no just more, can't pay no you can't I mean I put what, what I find my most kind of uh, you know eye-popping kind of um uh, discovery in the rental market recently was seeing a small little two bed cottage in Rings End that was on for four thousand euros yeah. uh, per month, which I thought was you know pretty mm. uh, you know. Uh, a great piece that's been put up on the, the Daily Edge in the last hour or so. Uh, they do this every month. Eight properties in the Dublin rental market this February that will probably want to make you move out of Ireland. And uh, if you want to be glad for the mortgage that you might only be barely affording, uh, go along to dailyedge.ie and have a look at that and you'll be sobered up uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, so I mean that, that that increase in properties that are available to, or places to, to, available to rent in Dublin, I mean it doesn't say whether they're talking individual bunk beds that are available well, to rent the, the in first one on that list is or, bunk beds. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> the, the, the housing supply levels were up uh, during the week. I mean, yeah, eighteen thousand uh, new units. Yeah, um, I mean, it's nowhere near what, what what's needed, but it 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 it's it's some hope in in terms of you know supply. Well, I mean, the government's issue. own target was twenty thousand for this year, and they managed eighteen thousand, and then about four thousand. Listen, we're complaining about overruns everywhere. So they're allowed an underrun every once <laughs> in a while, aren't they? <laughs> but it does. Uh, Gary's finish. But no, it, do, it it does link in with, with with wider questions of public policy, and it links in with the nurses' strike because we're constantly being told that the nurses that will, you know, would come home if, if money was, was greater in their pocket. Uh, but how in God's name could 
the vast majority of afford these uh, these rents. Yeah, and I mean it's the same for anybody. Well, anybody. Presumably, all the like I mean the the Facebooks and Googles who are who are announcing you know fifteen hundred jobs by you know in the next couple of years, like those people are going to need places to live. And I mean possibly a suggestion that that with these big campuses, Facebook and Google are building that they should put some accommodation on there as well. Yep, food for thought. Gavin Riley from Virgin Media News with you today on on the record and news talk going through the morning papers and more with our panel in just a moment on the record on news talk uh, welcome back. Coming up to 12 minutes to 12 on Sunday, the tw- uh, 10th of February. God, and the year's not flying by that quickly. Uh, it's Gavin Riley from Virgin Media News here on On the Record and News Talk till one o'clock this afternoon. Uh, our newspaper panel is still with us Richie Oakley, Colette Brown, and Gary Murphy. Um, there, it almost feels like it's a BAI quote at this stage, but we have to touch a little bit on Brexit. Um, Gary Murphy, Theresa May came to dinner in Farmery on Friday night. Uh, she brought neither a dessert nor a potato salad nor Shame. a backstop solution with her, <laughs> which, which leads you to the, the to jovial sounding question. But actually, quite serious one. What was the point? I don't know. It seems like you know someone invites themselves over to your house for a dinner party uh, with uh, with no end. I mean, Ireland. Uh, uh, the whole focus of the Irish government has been we're part of the EU and we negotiate as one. Uh, and so the idea that Theresa May, from some briefings, could basically sweet talk the Taoiseach into some sort of going back to Europe with some sort of. Um, Softening of our position seems quite uh, far-fetched, to, to put it mildly. So I'm not sure what the aim of it uh, was. All I know is that we're exactly where we were going back uh, months, years yeah. perhaps. And uh, it just there is a there is just a huge chasm between the view of the British Parliament and the view of Europe. Um, it is providing a lot of mirth, though, at the moment. And I mean, well, at it, least it may that. be it may be black humour and dark comedy, but the story over the weekend about. Uh, Chris Grayling, the transport secretary, having to cancel a contract he had given, he had given a contract to award ferries. for ferry services to a company with no ferries and no experience that didn't have a port from mm. which to launch said non-existent ferries. Whose website so had the T's and C's <laughs> from a fast food delivery company, I think. Yeah, yeah. But, he was, but he was supporting so startup business. That was his. That yeah. was his yeah. So, so, so when you're thinking that we're relying on you know people of his caliber to try to deliver this magical you know solution to Brexit, which as we all know. Is hurtling towards us like a you know train coming down a track then you know I wouldn't be holding out much hope what we saw happening over the weekend it's all about optics Theresa May in the British press coming over here it allows her to paint herself as battling for Britain Leo Varadkar from his point of view he gets to say that his door is open that he's trying you know he's mm. best to try to be you know at least collegiate and listen to what she has to say with the hope of maybe uh, securing a deal the whole thing is just a complete I, I, and utter I, shambles I, I thought the, the EU looked bizarre uh, last week I, I thought the, the Tusk special place in hell comment was yeah, totally if unnecessary if deliberately intended which it seems it was it's difficult to see exactly yeah. what he thought I, I thought it would the, the, the Juncker the, the, the card thing in the office that photo call and I have to question Leo Varadkar's go, going along with it and the smirking and the laughing and, and the oh this is great crack because you boil it all down, like you know, like why why poke Britain with, with with a stick? Like you know, we have good relations with this country. We do mm. a lot of business with with this country, back and forth. A lot of Irish people, you know, you go out to any early morning flight in Dublin Airport or any airport. There's a lot of people going to London and back for business, trying to do deals. We don't need to in- antagonise them. We we've put down a red line, and we're holding to it, and we have a right to do that. But I don't 
I don't know why we have to 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 to, to kind of. I don't think it was helpful, but I, th- I think I, I, I think it's just born out of frustration with what's going on at the moment. Uh, speaking of uh, frustration, Colette, there was one story uh, <coughs> I think in the Sunday Times today, page five, about how Ian Road Aaron is now going to recruit uh, inspectors uh, to man its trains and make sure that people who are listening to music are doing so through headphones yeah. and not disrupting the. I cars. actually, but you know, something you're very exercised I, about. I I actually think, and I'm going to launch my campaign here to make this a criminal offence for for forget <laughs> inspectors on trains who are going to politely ask you to wear headphones make it a criminal offence throw the offenders in jail minimum sentence a year I think I, I once sat on a bus from Cork to Dublin and the girl sitting beside me was listening to music with no headphones for the entire journey and being Irish I couldn't just turn around and say could you please t- <laughs> turn it off or maybe was it find, good music find, at least no it wasn't it was terrible it was awful um, so I just shot her the occasional dirty look and then silently see that all, all the way to Ma- uh, Dublin massive so. fines is what I want for this massive fines and the money really <laughs> invested <coughs> into a hot whiskey stall at Limerick Junction <laughs> right okay other options are available and if you've got any ideas for what you I'm spend the I'm not sure how on. that's going to work because um, Irish Rail say, say they're going to be hiring customer service agents to do this so I mean I don't know is this going to be their only job are there, they going to there would be a bit of you that would wonder whether perhaps Inrod Aaron could put the money towards other things rather than recruiting people just to be headphone police but that, that is another matter um, one other issue that I want to touch on uh, before before I have time to let you go um, there's a lot of coverage about Liam Neeson and what he said in that quite maybe ill-advised um um, film PR interview that he gave during the week um, Gary Murphy it strikes me that um, while most people would say that exhibiting the sort of behaviour that, that Liam Neeson mentions you know most people would say yeah that that's racist behaviour but if you want people to realise the error of their ways then wouldn't you want people like Liam Neeson to say I had this experience once upon a time and actually I'm really ashamed of it and that I'm doing my best not to con- you know, condition myself to think other ways now. It sounds like almost exactly the journey that you'd want people to take to become more tolerant, wouldn't you? Yeah, I suppose it does. And but it, 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 what I can't figure out is why he gave it uh, in the format he did, as I think from doing some big long sit down with uh, with some some organisation or other or uh, Oprah. Yeah, Oprah, yeah. Uh, he clearly had a racist moment there and then. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. That was a racist comment to make, uh, looking to beat up a black person because a friend of yours had been raped by a black not person. Not just beat him up, but murder, murder them. him. Exactly, yeah. And, um, and then saying that it's actually, it's okay, it's not racist, and that if it were a Lithuanian, I'd want to kill a Lithuanian. Yeah, but he did. Lithuanian might be slightly but, harder but he, to spot. It makes you racist imagine. and xenophobic. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, so he, he didn't go on a way, well, what, what accent did this person have as a thing from, was this person uh, black? He, uh, he seems to have got got caught up in one of his own terrible movies, uh, like Taken or whatever the new one is called, Retribution. Um, uh, but yeah, you cool would have, pursuit. You would have. You would certainly hope that uh, people would learn uh, from but this. But it was but almost like he didn't get the racist aspect of it. No, he didn't get so it at all. Much. I mean, he, because his new mo- new movie is about revenge, and he thought he just had a personal story to share about him once seeking revenge mm. without about revenge, without kind yeah. of you know thinking about the history and the black community of lynching <laughs> and you know the you know. The huge debate, or the huge debate about race that's ongoing in America at the moment. So it was a real. It goes beyond foot and mouth moment. I'm not sure exactly uh, how, how you can describe it. Richie, final word to you: Is this maybe just a lesson that sometimes people should talk about the thing that they're there to talk about and not to find themselves veering into other oh, matters? I, I, well, I hope not that people like end up wondering like what like we we already have sports stars who say nothing when you interview them, and um, and and now we're going to have actors who say nothing when you interview. I I I think he possibly went um, a bit too far, but like we are at the stage now where there's outrage about what people say uh, rather than rather than what they actually actually do. Hmm. Um, and I I I think yeah okay. I mean people can disagree and. and 
take him to task on it but like there's now t- people talking about this will be the end of his career and things like that um, I, I just I just think that's a bit of a stretch well if, too, if too Mel far. Gibson <laughs> can recover then you know, I think that he should be able Sarah to Sarah Caden has a good line whether it was blatant racism unconscious racism or some noble effort to probe the dark side of the human soul it caused a lot of offence and he went too far I think <laughs> it did it a little bit well. and, and it's that's fascinating the, that, that I think Gary's completely right that if he had done it in some other format where he could have someone could have said and don't you regret that yeah. and he could have gone yes I and regret that there was a big that. group hug at the yeah, end of it and it would have been totally fine uh, we're going to have to leave it there uh, my huge thanks to Richie Oakley editor of the Ireland edition of the Times Colette Brown columnist with the Irish Independent and Professor Gary Murphy political scientist at DCU thank you all very much for joining me this morning uh, back with lots more for you in just a moment